you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, where we'll begin this period of our worship where we open God's Word and study from the Bible. Matthew chapter 6. Good to see you this morning. We have visitors with us. Thank you for being here. We want you to feel welcome. And anything that we can do to help you in some way, please let us know about that. But most of all, we're just glad that you're here, that you've chosen to worship God with us. Uh, Before I get started, I want to remind our young people that we are having the high school junior high devotional today at our house at 4 o'clock. So for everybody who's already tuned out when I said that, I said 4 o'clock, not 5. And then we're going to do the eating part that we normally do at our house over at the Walls house tonight. So for parents who are dropping off, remember that. You'll drop off at our house. You'll pick up at the Walls house. All right. And if you're confused about that, you can talk to me after. I don't think I need to go over it again. But uh, looking forward to that. Four o'clock at our house. Looking forward to being with you this afternoon. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray in this text. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, the text says, Your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're studying this year in the kingdom. The passage that Brother Kerry read for us this morning is a kingdom prophecy about how the shepherd David will come and there will be blessings on the people of God during the kingdom. And as we do that, we're pursuing this thread in the preaching about God's reign and how God's reign is going to look for us. So last month, We talked about the idea that the kingdom is at hand, that when Jesus came, he preached that the long-prophesied rule of the Messiah was here. So why, the question I have this morning is, why is there so much confusion about the kingdom? We talked last month about how Jesus sort of redefined the prophetic ideas, that when you read the prophets, the prophets talk about the kingdom being a conquering kingdom, and the kingdom being an everlasting kingdom, and the kingdom being a just and peaceful kingdom. And Jesus redefines those so that they're not necessarily physical or military. And yet, people didn't understand that at the time of Jesus, and people have continued in that misunderstanding. Many today still anticipate an earthly, military-style kingdom in Jerusalem, even saying that Jesus' spiritual kingdom is a stopgap. It's just here for a little while until the real thing can come. They would say that the kingdom hasn't come yet. But there is another source of confusion when you talk about the kingdom, and that is that the Bible writers use the word kingdom in two senses. There is a sense in which the kingdom has come and a sense in which it has yet to come. So when we come to Matthew 6, we have a problem. Should we pray what Jesus taught his disciples to pray? That seems like an odd question, doesn't it? Of course, we as Jesus' disciples should pray what Jesus told his disciples to pray. But should we pray your kingdom come? And that was really brought home to me by something that happened when I was a young man, a teenager. And I played on the basketball team. And our little basketball team in the school that I attended had a group of young men that wanted to chant, say the Lord's Prayer before we played. And so we'd be in the locker room. These guys knew that I was a Christian. And I had been taught not to say, your kingdom come, because Jesus' kingdom had already come. And so here I was, 16, 17, 18 years old. These guys would start saying the Lord's Prayer. 
And I felt like I had to abstain because of what I had been taught. And I got some really strange looks and had some odd conversations. Let's just say they noticed that I didn't say the prayer that they believed was something Christians should say. But they didn't understand why. And frankly, I wasn't really ready to explain it to them either. And so the question I have is, is that something we should do or not? Is that, how should we understand this? Are we in the kingdom now? If we are in the kingdom, can we be thrown out? How do we ultimately inherit the kingdom? What are we waiting for? Where are we now? That's what I want to spend a few minutes talking about this morning. I want to talk about the kingdom come and yet not come. Because when we talk about the Bible's teaching on this, we have to acknowledge that there are two senses this word is used and then try to make sense of what we should do as a result of that. So let's start with this. The kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom has not come. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. The fact that the kingdom has come is the essence of Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom is here. That is what he came preaching. And God is acting in new ways to fulfill his promises and bring a messianic time of blessing. Matthew chapter 12 talks about that. In Matthew 12, Jesus is accused of working with Satan, that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. So Jesus and Satan are in league together. Matthew 12 and verse 25. Matthew 12, 25 says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So he says if Satan's kingdom is divided the way you're suggesting where I'm working for Satan and I'm bossing around and removing other minions of Satan, then it's not going to stand long. But, he says, there's something else to consider. If God's spirit is at work here, and this is about God bossing around Satan, then suddenly something else is meant. What's meant is that the strong man has been bound, Satan has been bound, Satan has been conquered, and now I am here as a representative of God bossing Satan's minions around as captives. And so he says that in summary in verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So one of the signals that the kingdom is here is that Satan is limited in his power and that God exercises his authority over Satan. And he says that means the kingdom has come upon you. So has the kingdom come? Yes, the kingdom has come. Turn with me a few pages over to Luke 17. We're going to go over to a few different areas in this part of our study. So I hope you'll get your your Bible open, get your finger licked. We're going to be moving around quite a bit here. Luke 17 and verse 20. Luke 17 and verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So they asked the question, when will the kingdom come? When? It's a time question, which is really what we're focused on this morning. When will the kingdom come? And Jesus does not answer them directly. 
In fact, you'll notice, we'll look at another passage in a moment, Jesus has a habit of not answering this question directly. Instead, what he says is, this is something that you're looking for in the wrong ways. He says in verse, 9, in verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So it's not coming in ways, he says, that you're going to be able to look at and point at and say, look, there's the kingdom, there's the kingdom. Instead, it's going to be something that works in a different way than you're expecting. He says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or your version might say within you. Now, there is great controversy about just what exactly Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is within you or in your midst. And I'm going to spare you all the controversy, just tell you what I think. If you disagree, we can talk about it later, that's fine. But I believe what Jesus means when he says this is the kingdom is already here. You keep looking for the kingdom. It's over here. It's over here. Where is it? When's it coming? The kingdom's already here. Your job now is to obey the king. In case you're not quite on board with that interpretation, I want to show you something that I think is a little stronger in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Mark 9 and verse 1, and he said to them, Mark 9 and verse 1, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus gives a very specific time marker here. There are some standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom has come with power. They will see the kingdom come with power. So the same thing Jesus said to his disciples, pray your kingdom come. He says, now the kingdom will come and some of you will see it. Now the implication, of course, is that some are going to die before they saw it. But it is a fixed time marker. Those people would have to be alive. And so he is saying, this is going to happen soon. And there is really not any way to spin this. If the kingdom did not come in the lifetime of the people Jesus is speaking to, then his words are not true. We've got a big problem if Jesus is making prophecies that don't come true. But what if Jesus meant that the kingdom would come with power, but perhaps not in the physical or governmental or military way they were expecting, but instead in the spiritual kingdom form that we see the New Testament describing. That is exactly what New Testament Christians believed about the kingdom. And I'll show you that as we keep going forward this morning. They believed that the kingdom had come in the form when Jesus came and began to boss Satan's minions around, and then particularly is in its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 when, on the day of Pentecost people begin to be right with God on the basis of Jesus. But I want you to notice this idea that the kingdom will come with power in your lifetime is very similar to some phrases that are used just before Pentecost. Let's look in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, as you see Jesus trying to prepare his men for what's about to happen, he talks about this is what's about to happen. They want to know... When is the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? And Jesus again talks about the kingdom and power. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, 
Acts 1 and verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He is teaching them and talking about the kingdom. Now, I wish we knew what exactly he was saying and all the text of that, but we can at least get the, the gist of it from what we read in the book of Acts. So he tells them to wait in Jerusalem, and then in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So a, a direct question, what's about to happen, Jesus? Are we about to see the kingdom? Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you notice that same pattern. They ask him a direct question about timing, and Jesus, again, is a little bit evasive. He says, no, that's not what we're talking about now. We're not talking about, will I restore the kingdom now? What we're talking about is, you're going to receive power. Some of you standing here, remember Mark 9, will see the kingdom of God come with power. And now he promises power. And so in Acts chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit coming on the apostles. We have the Holy Spirit empowering them. In Acts chapter 2, we have 3,000 people baptized for the remission of their sins, becoming the first local church. And then as the disciples go out preaching that message about Jesus and about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, do you know what they call it? They call it the good news of the kingdom of God. Let me show you that. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So you see, it's kind of a code word for the gospel, right? The good news about the kingdom is the same as the good news that Jesus has come or the good news about the atoning sacrifice. Whatever you want to say, it's the same idea. It's just another way to describe the gospel to say it's good news about the kingdom. Now, what would that good news be? Would it be that the kingdom hasn't come yet? Or would it be instead that the kingdom has come the way Jesus said it would in their lifetimes? Acts 19 and verse 8, he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, 25, now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Acts 28, 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Those last three passages are all talking about Paul and how Paul had gone around preaching about the kingdom. And even now at the end of the book, he is still talking about the kingdom uh, with the Jews. So the kingdom has come. The message of salvation is the message of the kingdom that is the good news about king the kingdom and the name of Jesus. But the kingdom has not yet come. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. There is also this sense that Jesus and many of the New Testament writers talk about the kingdom as something that is a future reality that we do not yet see. Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 11, Matthew 8 and verse 11, after Jesus observes the faith of this centurion who is a Roman, he is not a Jew, it says in Matthew 8 and verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now, I want you to notice there are a lot of wills here. This is a future vision of what's going to happen in the kingdom. He is not talking about this happens now. He is saying this will happen. Many will come. Many will sit down and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many will be cast out who they thought would not be cast out. So, when we talk about the kingdom not yet come, here's the way I I want us to think about it from this passage. What Jesus describes is a time when the kingdom is going to expand. Many will come from east and west. So you have expansion where more and more people come into the kingdom. That is a future thing from Jesus' perspective. That's something we still live through, the expansion and growth of the kingdom. And then you have the idea of judgment. Did you see that in verse 12? While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness... So part of the future fulfillment of the kingdom is going to have to do with people being judged as worthy or unworthy of placement in the kingdom. And then there is also the idea of enjoyment that is yet to come in the kingdom. Many will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. That's what we're going for. We want to be in the kingdom because someday we're going to enjoy the blessings and favor of God. And I don't even know all that this entails to sit down and eat at a banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I know I want to be there. And that's part of what Jesus is saying. Have the vision for the kingdom as it someday will be fulfilled. So expansion and judgment and enjoyment. The kingdom hasn't come yet. Those things haven't happened yet. Some of them are in the process of happening, but they are certainly not complete. And so Jesus says, look forward. In fact, one of Jesus' most prominent teachings, if you were to analyze the teachings of Jesus, you will find this over and over again, that people who think they are in the kingdom or think they will be in the kingdom find out to their surprise and dismay that they are not in the kingdom. Jesus says it over and over again. And it is a warning to us not to assume that because the kingdom has come in a sense that we're going to ultimately be in the kingdom without us having to actually obey God. Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 34. We we studied this passage last week, actually. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This speaks to a future judgment, and one of the rewards is inherit the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom. We're going to see that phrase a lot through the course of our study this morning. But the idea is at a future time, you will finally inherit what now you are laying a claim to when the kingdom comes. Or Paul says, I charge you, talking to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That there is a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come, and when Jesus comes back in his appearing and he judges, then that kingdom will be fulfilled. So, here is my point. We have the clear teaching that the kingdom has come, and yet we also have the clear teaching that there are aspects of the kingdom that have yet to be fulfilled or consummated. So the kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom has not come. Now, if you've got all of that, the second thing is, We're in the kingdom, and we're not yet in the kingdom. So as the New Testament writers express themselves about who is in the kingdom, now you have the issue, are we in or are we out? And then there is the sense that we're in, and yet someday we will finally be in. So let's look at a few passages about this. Let's look in Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. Let's just talk about the idea that we are in the kingdom now. You remember how we read Jesus saying, 
that he was plundering Satan's house. Nobody's going to take a strong man's stuff unless they bind the strong man. So I'm, I'm bossing the demons around. It means I must have bound Satan, their master. This passage is similar. Colossians 1 and verse 13, but it doesn't have to do with demons. It has to do with people who were once servants of Satan. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So notice that he says this is something that has already happened to Christians. They have been moved from one allegiance or loyalty or reign to another. We were under the power and rule of Satan. Now we are in the kingdom of God. So He is our King and we are in His kingdom. That means you and I as Christians are part of the kingdom of God. This is 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what the call of the gospel is. Come into my kingdom, come into my glory. And so when we obey the gospel, we come into his kingdom. Now the glory, some of that's yet to be done. But the idea is the gospel call is the kingdom call. In fact, John goes even further. This is in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 5, and 6. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. See, he doesn't just say you're in the kingdom. He says you are the kingdom. He made us a kingdom. Now, I think that John has heavy reference here. Back to Exodus, where after the people of Israel come out of Sinai, I'm out of Sinai, out of Egypt, and God speaks to them at Sinai, he says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Israel becomes his kingdom. In the same way, we now are his kingdom. So we are in the kingdom. You might even say accurately, we are the kingdom. But there is another sense in which we are not yet in the kingdom. So let's talk about that for a moment. Let's look in Matthew 7 and verse 21. Matthew 7 and verse 21. I mentioned earlier that one of the themes of Jesus' teaching is that people who think they are going to be in the kingdom, finding out they're actually not in the kingdom, and the surprise and dismay that comes from that. This is a good example of that. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, if you just were to read verse 21 you might not think that this is about future entrance into the kingdom. Verse 21 just says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. You say, okay, well, what he's saying is we have to obey before we get in. But, but no, verse 22 makes it clear, on that day. Jesus is looking forward. Jesus is looking toward day of judgment time. And he is saying, on that day, people who think they're in the kingdom, I'm going to say, I never knew you. Now, that is a scary idea, isn't it? And before we start to think, oh, well, this is all just uh, academic, we need to understand Jesus is warning us that we can think we belong to him, we can call him Lord, 
We can do things for him and yet not be in the kingdom at the end. Depart from me. I never knew you. So the the key is in verse 21 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It becomes essential for us to learn that the will of the Father is what must control our behavior and our thinking. I want to do God's will because I want to be in the kingdom. I am in the kingdom, and yet there is a sense in which I'm not yet in the kingdom. There are a number of passages. I'm going to put a few on the board, but there are others that teach in this way that we have to be careful in how we live now in anticipation that we might not make it into the kingdom ultimately. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 8 to 10. Paul writes, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that will inherit. Paul is writing to Christians and he says, you are wronging and defrauding each other and you need to know that the unrighteous, the word is actually you wrongdoers, won't inherit the kingdom. In other words, you're living in a way where you might forfeit what you're working for. It's a warning. So is this. After describing the works of the flesh, Paul writes, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think that the fact that you are in the kingdom now means you can live this way and someday inherit the kingdom. That's not going to happen. 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The qualities he's talking about are the things we grow in. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, all those things in 2 Peter 1. If you practice those things, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, Peter is not saying you're not in the kingdom now. What Peter is saying is if you practice these things, your calling and election is sure, and you will have a rich entrance into the kingdom at its final consummation. So there remains a sense in which we still have yet to inherit the kingdom. We're in the kingdom, and we're not yet in the kingdom. So what do we make of all of that? That's a lot of information. I appreciate your patience as we work through that. The bottom line of all of this teaching is that God has begun something that's not yet complete. That's the bottom line. He started it, and he has been planning it from before the foundation of the world. And that plan, parts of it have come to fruition and the kingdom has come, but God's work in the kingdom is not yet complete. So where we are is in what we might call an interim period. And one of the teachings of the New Testament is that that interim period between Jesus' coming and Jesus' return is important. We are, if we want to use the phrase we used earlier, we're in the expansion phase of the kingdom, where the kingdom is growing. And so it matters in this moment what we do in the kingdom. I want to show you what Jesus says about that in Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, 
In fact, we might even go so far as to say Jesus teaches us not really to be that focused on the signs of where we are, but instead is teaching us to focus on faithfulness and fruitfulness where we are. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem... And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he tells them this parable. We're not going to read all of it. It is the parable of the minas, which is very similar to the parable of the talents that you might be more familiar with, where the king, in this instance, gives money to each one of his servants. And two of the servants make money, and one of them buries his money in the dirt. The focus of the parable is, what do we do when the king is not present for a while? How do we live in the in-between, between when the king was here and when he's coming back? And this parable says we live faithful and fruitful. That we remember he's coming back, that we act as though he's coming back, that we keep his priorities in mind with his things. And that would be fruitful, doing his work, expanding his kingdom, anticipating his return. That's why it's important to know precisely where we are. That's why it's important to know, yes, we're in between the coming of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. We're in between the time where we have initially come into it and the time when we will inherit it. So... What do we learn here? I want to give you three ideas of how this might help, and then I want to tell you what I think about praying your kingdom come. First of all, we have some things to be thankful for. This is the past view. We look back and we can say, as Christians, as disciples, I have been taken out of the power of Satan and put under the power of God. I have been set free. I have things to be thankful for. Jesus has asserted his dominance, and that has impacted me personally because Satan no longer controls me. And I have him to thank for that. I have Jesus to thank for that. Not only that, I can see the fruit of God at work in my life. And I look at the person that I am, and I have grown from the person that I once was. I can see the fruits of the Spirit the attributes of Christ forming in me, and I can give thanks to God. I have a lot to be thankful for. I remember what it cost for me to have what I now have. And so I have so much to be thankful for. I need to take time to praise God for what's happened. And then we have things to look forward to because Jesus' kingdom has yet to be finalized. The best is yet to come. Jesus is coming back, and as we've said, there will be judgment then. But there will also be vindication. There will be rejoicing. There will be transition to a better existence. There will be the elimination of death. There will be the end of sorrow. No more tears. And there will be joy. Can you imagine what it will be like to see Jesus? Have you thought about it? Can you imagine what it will be like to rest at peace with God? 
when we are what God always intended for us to be, when things are finally made right? These are the thoughts that help us through our hard times here because we have things we're looking forward to that will be better. And we can lay hold of those promises as we understand that God is always faithful to his word and he has promised those things. Then we have God's will to do now. As I've said, we live in the expansion phase of the kingdom, which means the kingdom is growing. More and more are coming from east and west to be in and to be a part of what God is doing through Jesus. But Jesus also warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. And so each one of us, we have our choices to make in this in-between time. We have choices to make in our homes with our families. I have choices to make about how I'm going to treat my wife and children. I have choices to make about whether or not I'm going to discipline myself. I have choices to make about whether or not I'm going to speak about Jesus. Whether or not I'm going to be ashamed by my association with him and the things that he's taught. And those choices are not just going to impact me. They also impact others and their entrance into the kingdom. And they impact the spread of the kingdom. And that takes me back to Matthew 6, where we started. So can we pray that phrase, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I certainly want God's will to be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. That should be the desire of all Christians. But I have come to the conclusion that I can pray, your kingdom come, for several reasons. Now, first of all, when I pray that phrase or that idea, I do not mean that Jesus' kingdom has not yet come. I don't mean come establish your kingdom. Because as we've seen, that's not what the Bible teaches about the kingdom. But I do pray it in the sense that God's kingdom still has not fully come, has not fully been consummated. And I can pray it in the sense that I want the kingdom of God to spread and come into the hearts of more and more people. I want God's kingdom to continue to come. And I can also pray it in the sense that the next steps of God's kingdom, I want God to continue the work. In the same way that New Testament Christians prayed, O Lord, come, Maranatha. So we pray, your kingdom come. Because we anticipate the time when those next stages of what God has planned for the world and for us will finally come to fruition, when God will make all things new. So I have no trouble praying that. You might disagree. We can talk about that, and we can still be friends. But the kingdom has come and yet not come. My point, and what I want you to take away, is that I want us to be in sync with what God is doing. God is at work in our world, and he has been at work long before we were born. And now we can enter into that work, and in our daily lives, in our interactions with others, we can be a part of God's work. We can be a part of God's kingdom, and we can usher in what's next. And I want to ask God to involve me in the unfolding of his plan. Would you pray with me about that? Our God... We thank you so much for the time that we've been able to have that you've granted to us to study from your word. We're thankful for your word that is a guide to us. 
We're thankful that you've revealed it and preserved it for us. We're thankful, Father, for the unfolding of the kingdom and the message of the kingdom that we've been studying, that we're working through this year. And Father, I pray that you will help us as we study these things and think about the work you're doing to trust you, to be thankful to you for all that you've done for us, and to want to serve you in our daily lives. I pray that you'll help us to have the confidence that comes from knowing that you're behind us. I pray that you'll help us to do your will and that we can, in our little way, have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray, Father, that in this local church, to the greatest extent we can, we can have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray, Father, that you will give us courage and boldness as we face down a world that does not know you or care about your things, that we will continue to do your work and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of salvation that we have in Jesus, for the hope of eternal life that we have through him. And we pray that you'll sustain us, Father, through the tasks that we have on earth as we look forward to that time when we'll be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel. We want you to know that we would love nothing more than for you to begin your life in following Jesus. A new life, a change in life where you can move from the domain of Satan who you served because of your sin and become a servant of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a part of God's kingdom. And if you're ready to make that step, to have your sins washed away by his blood, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, We'd love nothing more than to help you. Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.